0: Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks for praying, and and thanks to everyone that's been involved uh, in the service so far. Fantastic seeing all uh, the all-girl band up here this morning. Felt like I was watching Heart back in the eighties. Does that make me just feel old? You can look them up on YouTube. As Steve said, uh, feels like I've got a bit of a home ground uh, advantage. Uh, I actually taught here at Temple for the better part of twenty years, Um, and so this space here is very familiar to me. kind of been out of action here at the school for for the last 18 months, but um, many, many assemblies on the stage here, uh, looking at 450 kids in front of me uh, every Monday morning. So it's nice to be back and having a chance to speak uh, here this morning. And today is a bit like a, it's a bit of a one-off really. Um, We're going to start a new series next week. And so I was just given the opportunity just to kind of pluck one out of of nowhere. And... um, I often, when I've got this opportunity, I often go back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, there's something about that book for me that, that's quite meaningful, um, and it, which is a little ironic because it's a, it's a book about meaning. It's, a, it's part of wisdom literature. Uh, and it's just, for me, it's a great place to go because it looks at the idea of discovering meaning or searching for meaning uh, in a world which is incredibly uncertain. And it just feels like, I mean, 2020 is one of those years, isn't it? Uh, We're all scratching around, trying to find meaning and purpose and and trying to make sense of a world that's incredibly uncertain. So I just thought Ecclesiastes was was a good place for us to go uh, this morning. So in a second, whether the Bible is on your phone or whether you've got a physical copy, we're going to have a look at uh, just a couple of passages out of Ecclesiastes 4 and 5. But as we get there, one of the great things that um, I had the opportunity to do when I was here at Temple was lead... mission teams off to Cambodia Uh, and even though I wasn't officially working at Temple last year I got to go back with the team uh, thanks to Brad over there uh, last year so during term three for the last seven or eight years I've been in Cambodia so it's one of the great things I'm really going to miss this year but there was I had a particular moment uh, a couple of years ago uh, in an urban slum in uh, the Stang Menche district of Phnom Penh And even though I'd been to Cambodia many times before, and I kind of thought I'd seen everything that there was to see, this place was different again. This community that we visited was um, actually built on top of a swampland into which uh, raw sewage from the surrounding community was pumped on a daily basis. Uh, And so as we spent some time in that community, as we walked across these uh, makeshift boardwalks built across the swampland, and as we spent time with the people that lived In these ramshackle homes, um, every now and again we were hit with wafts of the most repellent smell you could possibly imagine. It's hard to even describe, Brad knows it because he was there, but it's hard to describe to you how bad this smell actually was. Um, And evidently it was a really good day. Uh, There'd been some recent rain and the water was flowing and what that meant was that it kind of kept some of the smell and the mosquitoes at bay from all reports in that community when when the rain stops and the water stagnates the smell is unbearable and the mosquitoes breed and sickness ravages the community uh, and it's just awful but i remember thinking to myself as i sat there um, part of me wanted to get out of that place as quickly as i possibly could Uh, it just really it kind of didn't feel safe on one hand in fact, we often joked about the fact that you know, if one of us put our foot through that boardwalk and went into the water, there would be no rescue efforts, because uh, life would not be worth living from that moment on. Uh, it was that kind of place. So part of me wanted to get out of there as quickly as I possibly could. But there was another part of me that wanted to stay for long enough so that I didn't forget Because we can be like that, we can kind of move in and out of situations sometimes and too easily forget what we see and I didn't want to forget what I'd seen and experienced. I kind of wanted the smell to stick in my nostrils. Because the overwhelming feeling that I had in that place was that it just wasn't fair. It wasn't fair that people had to live that way. It kind of wasn't fair that I could just too easily walk out of that place, jump on a tuk-tuk put my hand sanitizer on and sit down to a nice air-conditioned lunch. It wasn't fair. And I think we all feel like that sometimes. We all have that sense of what is probably what we classify as like a global or external sense of injustice. We see things, we feel things that just aren't fair. And we see things on a daily basis that just don't seem right. People kind of get sick and die before their time. We see poverty and racism and exploitation and oppression around our world and we know those things aren't right. They don't fit with the way that we want the world to be. We all feel that external sense of injustice. But I also think most of us live with an internal or personal sense of injustice as well. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. And this, is, this kind of injustice has got less to do with you know, this poor community trying to eke out an existence in a Cambodian slum, and more to do with why is life not fair for me? And I think we all feel that way sometimes. Perhaps it's in our weakest and most vulnerable moments, but we all have the temptation to feel that way sometimes. Why is life not fair for me? And often our measure of what's fair or unfair in our own personal circumstance often comes in comparison to other people. It centres around the lives of others. And again, in our weak and vulnerable moments, we start to ask ourselves questions like, you know, why don't I seem to get the same opportunities that other people seem to get? Why can't I seem to find anyone when everyone else seems kind of happy and content in their relationships? Why can't my life look as good as everyone else that I see when I scroll through social media? It's that kind of idea. Why is life not fair for me? It's that little part of us that struggles to move beyond those same feelings that we had when we were kids and our brother or sister got that little bit more than us. Do you remember feeling that way? That personal sense of injustice, that they got that little bit more coke than we did or that couple more chocolates in their bowl than we did? And we know we shouldn't feel that way. But we work hard. We're faithful. We're good people. We're kind of deserving. And besides, we live in a culture where we are so used to getting what we want when we want it. That when life doesn't go our way, it just seems unfair. And herein lies some of the great wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Because the writer's struggle is not unlike our own. The writer of Ecclesiastes is not some faithless person who's desperately searching the universe for any sign of meaning or purpose. They, like us, are a person of faith. They inherently believe that life is not an accident, that there is meaning and purpose to be found in the world. The trouble is when they go looking for that meaning, When they go searching, what they see and experience tells them the very opposite. Instead of finding meaning and fulfilment and rest, they discover disappointment, futility and frustration. And this is our tension. And that's why I love the book of Ecclesiastes so much. This is our tension as well. This is what we live with. When our faith teaches us that life is full of meaning, When we listen to the words of Jesus in John 10, 10, who says that he has come to give us life and life to the full. But too often, whether it's on a global scale or in our own personal life, everything tends to go pear-shaped. The question is, how do we live in that tension? When life doesn't meet our expectations, when life just doesn't seem fair, The answer in Ecclesiastes, and we're going to dig into it in a second, but the answer in Ecclesiastes is not that there is no meaning. It's not that all of our efforts are futile and a waste of time. Its conclusion is that we look for meaning in all the wrong kinds of things. It's little wonder that life often leaves us feeling like it's unfair, because too often our pursuits are misdirected. And when we dig into Ecclesiastes, what the writer gives us, and what I want to focus on this morning in chapters 4 and 5, is some little contrasts. And the contrasts are about searching for meaning in all the wrong kinds of things. And then we get some little contrasts with finding meaning in the most important things in life. And so the first contrast we're going to have a look at is in chapter 4. So if you've got your Bible there, go. And we're going to start in, 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 um, in verse 4. And the little contrast that we get to begin with is this contrast between chasing after meaning in position and finding meaning in people. Have a listen to what the writer says, uh, starting in verse 4. And I saw all that toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. The writer starts by looking around and discovering that much of people's effort and striving in life centres around their envy of other people. And when I hear that, it reminds me that this has been the case since the dawn of time, hasn't it? So much of our life and our effort and the things that we're striving for centre around other people's lives and not our own. And what he goes on to describe is this man who has worked his guts out his whole life. He's worked incredibly hard, but he's never actually reached a point where he's been content with his lot in life. And one day he sticks his head up and realises that for all his hard work, for all of this striving to position himself, he's got absolutely no one left to share it with. He's rich, he's likely a man of great prominence, but he's lonely and he's desperately unhappy. This scene actually reminds me a little bit of the final scene from the movie A Social Network. Did anyone see that? It's 2010, like it's 10 years old already, but it was a movie based around the birth of Facebook. Now, it has to be said that it's a, it was kind of a movie of historical fiction. I think they embellished a few things in the story for the sake of cinema, which is okay, and I think they embellished a few things, particularly around the life of the founder, Mark Zuckerberg. But if we're prepared to put that aside for a second uh, and take it as truth, the movie finishes with Zuckerberg sitting in a dark office behind his computer, looking very lonely. This man who's worked relentlessly his whole life, who has burnt, and if you watch the movie, you see he's burnt relationship after relationship to pursue his goal. He's become wildly successful, the world's youngest billionaire. And there he is, sitting alone in a dark office, by himself, making a friend request to an old girlfriend, just sitting there, clicking refresh, 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 waiting for someone to respond. That's how the movie finishes. It's actually a really sad scene to finish. But what it describes is that for all of his effort, all of his striving, for all of that hard work, all of that seems vacuous, In relation to the one thing that he desperately craves and that is a genuine relationship with another human being. For me it's always been a vivid example of what uh, Freddie Mercury once said, another wildly successful man, he said you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. Mark Sayers, a pastor in Melbourne, talks about the fact that we live in a culture of achievement we're so set on achieving in life, we're so set on kind of achieving so that we can have the life that we've always wanted, the best possible life for us. You know, sometimes in that pursuit, we can leave other people behind. We can leave the most important things behind, and those people. And not that there's anything inherently wrong with achievement, of striving to do something good, of working hard to accomplish important things. But if it's it's at the expense of the people around us, it'll ultimately disappoint. It will lead to futility. Because that kind of life can never fulfill. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us a contrast. And it's actually a really beautiful contrast. So straight away, again in verse 9, the writer says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It's quite a beautiful contrast to what has come before And this contrast that we get is actually a beautiful picture of community, of a life lived with and for others. It's a picture of relationship and security. It's a picture of a life that's worth living, which is less about achievement and position and more about investment in people. And so for me, this contrast raises a couple of really important questions for us. And the first question I'm going to pose is more of a negative way of looking at this. And the question is this, who in our lives is being neglected? In our drive to achieve, in our pursuit of the life that we think that we want, who ends up missing out? Because if we're not careful, our marriages suffer, our kids suffer, our friendships vanish, our relationship with God stagnates. Who has been neglected? But then to switch it around to a more positive perspective, let me ask this, who are we bringing life to? Who are we sharing life with? What relationships are we investing in? How are we setting aside our own agendas for the sake of others? I had an old mate, uh, his name's Andrew Dwight, he lives in Melbourne now, I haven't seen him for a couple of years, but uh, I remember doing quite a bit of work with him and one of the challenges that he had was around this idea of who are we bringing life to. And so in my head, it's always been the Andrew Dwight challenge. Um, And what he used to talk about was that every interaction, every conversation that we have is an opportunity to bring more life to that situation than there was before. And this has always been a challenge, just rolling around in the back of my head, because I know this. I know that when I'm tired and grumpy, I can suck the life out of a room quicker than anyone can. And I think we've all got the capacity to do it. You've probably all been in that situation before, haven't you? Where you're tired, you're grumpy, you're over it and whatever, and you can suck life out of relationships. You can suck life out of a room. And yet this is the challenge. Every interaction, every conversation is an opportunity to bring more life than there was before. When we're sitting around the table with our family at home, when we're interacting with people at work, when we're having conversations with people here at church, when we're coaching the local under-15s footy team at Goodwood Saints, when we're doing all of those things, every conversation, every interaction is an opportunity to bring more life. And that's a challenge I I kind of want to leave rolling around in your head as well. How are we bringing more life to those situations than there was previously? I love the way that Earl McManus, a pastor in Los Angeles actually, he describes the result of this way of living. And he says this, You will never become less when you're committed to making others more. The happy are those who give their lives away And when they give their lives away, they find life to the fullest. That's the way that God has created and designed us to live, to bring life, not to pursue position and burn relationships along the way, but to invest in people, in relationships. There we find meaning. There we find the life that God has created us for. The writer then goes on to give us another contrast. So the first contrast was between position And people, and the second contrast he gives us in chapter 5 is a contrast between what we can get and seeing life as a gift. So we're going to pick it up at verse 8 in chapter 5. The writer says this, If you see the poor and oppressed in a district, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. He's just describing the injustice that he sees. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, So they depart. And what do they gain? Since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. It's not the kind of verse you have up on your fridge, is it? But it probably actually still describes modern life really, really well. And as I read this passage, I'm often reminded of that Jeep ad from a couple of years ago. In fact, it's made of a comeback on TV over the last uh, couple of weeks. Remember that Jeep ad where, you know, the guy drives home in his brand new Jeep SUV, uh, drives into the driveway of his beautiful home in a beautiful uh, tree-lined street, and as his son sees his dad roll in with the new Jeep SUV, his response is, we're going to need a bigger boat. It's just a classic, just synopsis of modern life. The new car needs a bigger boat. And of course, if you you get a bigger boat, you need a bigger garage, right? And to get a bigger garage, you need a bigger house. And to get a bigger house, you need a better job. Uh, And when you get a better job, you need a bigger mortgage. All of these things just go round and round and round. And this is kind of what the writer is describing here. Pretty soon, we're losing sleep. Our levels of anxiety rise because we have no concept of enough there's always something else and the more wealthy we get the richer we have the more the more we have the more we need the more we want and it goes round and round and we end up on this relentless but ultimately futile search for that next thing that will truly bring us satisfaction in fact Jesus tells a very similar story in Luke chapter 12 uh, when he describes a farmer who has this bumper crop and instead of being content with what he has and perhaps sharing the leftovers with his community he figures to build bigger barns so that he can eat drink and be merry the passage talks about and as jesus tells the story that very night that same farmer loses his life and all of his grandiose plans all of this stuff that he has placed so much of so much value in are proved to be totally worthless in many respects, it's the antithesis of the old slogan of, you know, who, who, he who dies with the most toys wins. Uh, I was sitting in a classroom a couple of years ago, uh, and there was a, a picture up or a poster up on the wall that had the very opposite of that, of he who dies with the most toys is none, nonetheless still dead. Uh, and that's kind of what we just, what's being described here. You know, our materialistic culture offers us so much and delivers so little. It almost seems unfair, unless of course there is more to life than what we can get. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes once again gives us a beautiful contrast, there's another way of living, there's another way of discovering meaning in life other than striving for what we can get. In verse 18, this is what I have observed to be good. That it's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I love the simplicity of this. The stark contrast is rather than being preoccupied with what we can get, it is to see and live life as a gift. It's a reminder to us that life is to be savoured. And In many ways, as I said before, Ecclesiastes is a book that highlights the uncertainties of life. And yet within that, it actually offers us something very concrete, something very focused. And that is when we can't be sure what the future holds, it forces us to make the most of the present. And if ever there was a message for 2020, it's this. If we're not sure of what the future holds, it forces us to make the most of this present moment, to not overlook the ordinary, to savour every moment as God's gift to us, rather than rush through moments in anticipation of better things to come. Because those better things to come may well be a chasing after the wind. So again, my challenge is this, to savour every moment. Next time that you sit down for a meal, it could be lunch today, it could be dinner today, it could be this week sometimes. Next time you sit down for a beautiful meal or a glass of wine or experience a sunset, Savour that moment, don't rush through it. Next time you have the opportunity to sit down with your family around the table, make the most of that moment again. Don't rush through it in anticipation of better things to come. Make the most of that moment. Next time you mow an edge of lawn, something that I love to do. I always have a great sense of accomplishment when I've mowed an edge my lawn. Next time you do that, or next time you have a clean kitchen or you finish a project at work, Stop and enjoy that moment. Don't rush off from it to the next thing. Savour it. It is a gift from God. When we learn to not rush through life, rush through moments in anticipation of better things to come, we start to understand that these very moments are given to us by God as a gift. Again, I'm going to quote Earl McManus again, who says something beautiful, and I want this to resonate with us. He says, something worth living for is happening right in front of our eyes. The tragedy is that we may not even see it. Something worth living for is happening right in front of our eyes. Let's not miss those moments. We tend to miss those moments because we're preoccupied with what we don't have or where we could be. But the life that God has given us to live is not the life that we could have. It's the life that we have now. Let's not waste that. Let's not rush through that. But let's savour the life that God has given us as a gift. Because if our lives are a never-ending quest for pleasure and position and possessions, it's always going to seem unfair at some level. Because it will never deliver what we want or live up to our expectations. But if we see life as a gift, in both the ordinary and extraordinary moments in life, the inevitable outcome is a beautiful picture of contentment, which, if you didn't hear before, is given to us in verse 20. Listen to what the writer says. If we look for meaning and purpose and we find life when we invest in others, in relationships, and when we see life as a beautiful gift from God. This is the result. He says in verse twenty, they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Let me pray for us. Well, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to gather together as community. And that's important because that is the way you have designed us to be. Not to live lives out on our own, doing our own thing for our own purposes, desperately trying to find meaning and purpose in our own position. But God, you have given us life so that we can invest in others. We can find our place in communion. We can give ourselves away for the sake of you, for the sake of others, for the sake of our world. Father, I just pray that you'll help us to see that that is what you're calling us to every chance we get every conversation, every interaction we have, may we bring life like you have brought life to us in our world. And Father, we just pray too that as we live our lives in all of its complexity, in all of its uncertainty, in all of the inevitable doubt and failure and struggle that we have through life, may that not distract us from understanding that the life you have given us is a precious, precious gift. That something worth living for is happening right in front of us. And may we savor those moments. May we see the goodness, your goodness, uh, in and through the ordinary and extraordinary things that happen in our lives. May we stop and slow down for long enough to understand the beautiful gift that life is that you have given us. Father, we thank you that life is not a futile search for meaning. That fulfillment And meaning and purpose and true contentment is found when we follow you. It's found when we seek the things that are of your kingdom. And we just pray that as we go out today, you might refocus our minds around what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the kingdom of God for the sake of our world. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' precious name.